The Defense Department is under statutory obligation to deliver a thousand or so reports to Congress each year. One analysis says the department consistently fails at that task and that Congress doesn't get the information it needs for proper oversight of military affairs. Brennan Center Counsel Catherine Jan Ebright joins me now with more. Ms. Ebright, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me on, Tom. And you took a look at the situation, some FOIA documents we'll get into, but first of all, just outline the issue. A thousand, is that about the right number? And if that's the case, how many do they actually send over to the Hill every year? The reporting requirements for the Department of Defense established in each annual National Defense Authorization Act now stands at a very high, as as you suggested, a thousand plus reports on an annual basis. That's actually a very large increase relative to about a decade, decade and a half ago, when that number would have been in the hundreds, but now we're sort of in the mid-thousands. And while advocates have identified substantial shortfalls, as well as, you know, congressional overseers have identified substantial shortfalls in the Department of Defense's reporting compliance, the exact quantity of the under compliance is yet unknown, at least as a matter of public record. That's something that the Brennan Center is trying to assess. We're trying to get data from the Department of Defense and have filed a separate FOIA request so that we'll be able to quantify not only what that shortfall looks like, but also whether there are specific subject areas or Department of Defense component parts that are especially bad with respect to report compliance. I'm I'm happy to talk, too, about why we can say with certainty, though, that there's that under-compliance. Well, yeah, let's go there first, then. Why can you tell with certainty there's under-compliance? So we know with certainty that there is under-compliance because some of the Department of Defense's reporting requirements explicitly say that the reports not only must be submitted to Congress, but also must be publicly posted And so you have organizations like the Center for Civilians in Conflict who track, for instance, civilian harm and on an annual basis are combing through the NDAA and trying to find, okay, what are these public reporting provisions and then tracking whether those reports are actually extant. And oftentimes they are not. Uh, You also look from a year to year basis on what the lawmakers are writing or proposing for various defense bills. And you will see on a regular basis proposals, sometimes they do make it into the final text, that say we want to withhold a percentage of the Department of Defense's budget for this year until it submits this report, that report, the other report from sometimes as far back as five years ago. And so you have these persistent asks from the lawmakers. You also, of course, have things coming up in congressional testimony, in private conversations with congressional overseers in which They're identifying not only the number of reports, but specific, very important reports that they've been asking for and haven't received. Yeah, that was my question. It's noticed on Capitol Hill that they're not received. Do you think the members notice it or is it pretty much staff that is the recipient as a practical matter for these reports? So the reports will typically go to the committee staffers and then the committee staffers, if they know that there is a member who's particularly interested in an area, maybe that member sponsored the requirement for the report, they can send that report along or they can summarize the report. So that's sort of the chain of it. But certainly there are reports of high salience that the lawmakers will be looking out for. And they will mention, they will ask, for instance, Department of Defense officials, why have we not received this report when we asked for it by law, however many years ago? 
And the follow-on question then is, do we know, in, in your experience dealing with members of Congress, do they actually read them and make decisions and funding priorities and hearing questions based on them, or do they just want to make sure they get it and <laughs> it may sit on the shelf? Because I think that's what happens to a lot of reports that go to Congress. Yeah. So again, for some reports, I think we can say with certainty that the lawmakers are looking out for them, are engaging with them when they receive them, and certainly staffers are. So whether the lawmakers themselves are going into a skiff and reading a report or are looking for a publicly available report, or whether they're relying on some really bright 33-year-old to read it, summarize it, tell them the headline points, it's still the information being conveyed to Congress And Congress needs that to be informed in its legislative process. There are, though, and and you do raise the point, and it's a good one, a lot of reports where the Department of Defense, as well as the lawmakers and their staffers, get the sense it's submitted and it just sits on a shelf. And I don't want to say that this problem is 100% the Department of Defense's fault. You see that explosion in reporting requirements that the Department of Defense has. And I think Congress needs to be a little bit more discerning in what it's actually asking for. Sure. We're speaking with Catherine Jan Ebright. She is counsel at the Brennan Center. And you FOIA'd and received a report that the Pentagon itself prepared. This was a few years ago on how they could improve their own reporting process Give us the highlights of what that said. You know, it's a 26-page, single-spaced report, but in it, and having scanned it, the Defense Department does lay a lot of the blame on Congress, the fact they thought to have to submit in paper instead of electronically. And so whatever happened to that report, and is anyone acting on it? The report on reports. Let's pull back a moment and talk about why the Department of Defense produced this report on reports extremely bureaucratic. It's because Congress had identified all of these shortfalls in reporting and said, hey, Department of Defense, what's up? Why is this so bad? And what are you going to do to fix it? And so in response to that legal requirement from Congress, come up with a plan to fix your reporting. What the department does is it submits this report on report, which lays virtually every single reform necessary at Congress's feet. So you mentioned, for instance, the Department of Defense claiming alleging that Congress has enacted legislation that requires hard copies of reports. And if you look at the law that they're citing, which is Section 480 of Title 10 of the U.S. Code, if any of our listeners are going to look it up, that section actually requires the Department of Defense to submit reports electronically, not in hard copy. Um, That's very plain from the face of the text. Moreover, for the past two decades, going back as far as 2003, when enacting reporting requirements, often Congress will specify and the Department of Defense shall submit this in electronic form in accordance with Section 480. And so it's completely unambiguous. Yet the Department of Defense has said, our excuse is you're asking for it in paper copy, not in electronic medium. And and that's just untrue. Other things that they say slow their report compliance is they claim that it takes as long as three months to identify all of the reporting requirements within each big defense bill. And then they say it takes several months on top of that to assign out those reporting requirements within the Department of Defense. 
And that's similarly preposterous. He, <laughs> you know, just speaking frankly, the Brennan Center has had junior staffers comb through those same documents and identify reporting requirements. And it can be done in a week, two weeks, if you really prioritize it. So it's a matter of prioritizing, complying with the law. Um, and that's simply not been done when it comes to providing critical information to the Hill. All right. And I suppose maybe the Hill could publish the NDAA in searchable PDF. That would be progress, I think, for just about anyone who has waded into this document, as I have. Well, given all this, they're at loggerheads then, basically. And there's sort of passive resistance on the part of the Pentagon, ever-increasing demands on the part of Congress. Is there a practical way out of this? So I think the way out of this is for Congress to play a little bit of hardball, which is to say that this is a matter of failing to prioritize complying with reporting requirements. And we can't pretend that the Department of Defense doesn't have the resources to comply with those requirements when it has over $800 billion in its budget, which, by the way, Congress's budget is 1% of the Department of Defense's budget. So for DOD to say Congress needs to do this, that, and the other thing to allow us to fulfill our requirements, our, our legal obligations, it's a little bit questionable. But I think by playing hardball, what I mean is Congress has historically and increasingly is taking to mechanisms that say you can only use 50 percent of your budget for travel. You can only use 75 percent of your operations and maintenance budget until you submit this critical report. And so I think that does two things. One, it uses Congress's power of the purse to ensure that it's getting the information that it needs to govern. And two, it is implicitly saying these are really critical reports and we're going to attach our power of the purse, our appropriations power to obtaining compliance, obtaining that information. Well, that would certainly get their attention. Catherine Jan Ebright is counsel for the Brennan Center. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, 
I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause, and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely casts division. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, describe how your personal background and upbringing 
folds into how you function as a leader? You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. 
But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.